Hey, hockey fans. Welcome to Across the Pond, Hong Kong's first and only hockey podcast. I'm Chris Ivany, and I'm here tonight at beautiful Sunset Studio, as always. And I've got a special co-host with me tonight, Mr. Terry Whalen. How are you tonight, Terry? Yeah, great. Uh, great, Chris. Always back to be in the studio. Uh, Andy on the board. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's winding down, eh? It and is. They've, 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 they've pulled it off. Yeah, it, lo- it looks like they're going to with with one or you know possibly two games max left. Yeah, yeah the big uh, you know the one of the big concerns at the start of this was are whether, we going to get through are, it? Are you going to get through it? And know. Uh, you know, so uh, it's definitely that, worth noting because there were a lot of times we didn't think we'd be getting a Stanley Cup champion this year. That's right. There was a lot of naysayers. You know, all the way through, should this even have happened at all? Yeah. And uh, you know, it's nice to see that uh, again. There, there have been injuries, of course, and mm-hmm. there's been setbacks, but those are all related to the game. Nothing to do with the, uh, you know, no. with the COVID. The no, I think situation. the NHL did a hell of a job, and mm-hmm. they should be commended for everything they've done. Yep. So uh, that being said, we were we just watched Dallas uh, pull off a little bit of a miracle in Game Five, double overtime win from uh, and an unlikely hero, as yeah. seems to be the case, a lot in these playoffs. Uh, Mr. Corey Perry coming up big. Yeah, and and the grizzled veteran, right? The grizzled past. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure, you know, they they seem to have. It's the old guys that have been carrying them big time these last couple of games. Yeah, I think Pavelski and Perry got right. the last six goals. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, yeah, unlikely, but I mean, Dallas is a, is a scary team, and and Tampa Bay is going to be on their heels a little bit in Game Six. I think. I think they'll be pressing to get this over with yeah. now. I, I thought there were some real parallels between Game 5 and the Islanders series, mm-hmm. where the Islanders just hung around and hung around, but managed to pull it out. Yeah, And then it got to Game 6, yeah. and they took them to overtime. That's right. And, you know, if, if they can manage, if Dallas can manage, you know, one more, then it's a best of one. Well, I know they can, and yeah. Hudobin's proven it time and time again. And you never know who's going to step up, and somebody from Dallas that we never even heard of could step up. <laughs> it just seems to be the way it's going for them. Beauty of the um, Speaking of stepping up and stepping in, Stamco stepped in for a few shifts. Yeah, had his uh, had his Willis Reed moment there. He yeah, was able to he was able to come back and uh, yeah provide the inspiration. He did, and uh, you know I think that he said he managed five shifts, two and a half minutes of ice time, scored a goal in his first <laughs> shot. Yeah, he was flying up yeah. the wing there, and then he hobbled off the ice at the end of the period. So, yeah. and now he's on fit to play, and apparently he just kept reaggravating old injuries. But I'm right. confused whether he had hernia surgery or sorry, core muscle surgery. Yeah. In the in the off season. Aye. And but it's a lower body, so I'm I'm not sure if it's related to his old knee injury or the muscle. But anyway, Stamkos is out for the rest of the playoffs. Yeah, but uh, I'm sure it was well. Again, he he you know provided that little bump for them. He certainly did. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure he was uh, happy to be able to get in and contribute as as much as he could. And yeah, I'm sure Dallas is is not really really sorry. Mm-hmm. To uh, to see him not not being. I bad. wasn't sure uh, if you have what the rules are now pertaining to uh, getting your name on the cup. Right. So he might have had to play in a game in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Maybe. Yeah. In order that's, to that's get your name on the cup. Yeah. I'm gonna have to double check on that and get back to you guys yeah. next week. But I know there's there's some stipulations on sure. getting your name on the cup. Yeah. So I was thinking if that was the case, they were smart to throw him in in Game Four. Right. Rather than game seven, of course, uh, and take yeah. up a roster spot yeah. of a guy who can only play two and a half minutes. Yeah, yeah, knowing that uh, he could only go so far. That's right. Yeah. So that being said, I'm uh, really looking forward to game six. Um, and actually, I would love to see a game seven. So sure. uh, maybe Corey Perry's got one more game winner in him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, yeah, with no, uh, no set allegiance in this, uh, I'm just hoping for more hockey. Yeah, exactly. Me too. I don't want it to end. Yeah. So uh, speaking of ending, some players have had their time end uh, with the, the respective teams. A few more trades to talk about here, Terry. Uh, Mark Stahl was traded by the Rangers um, to the Red Wings for uh, future consideration. So two Stahl brothers were traded this week. Mark and Eric both traded. Also, the Florida Panthers acquired forward Patrick Hornquist from the Pittsburgh Penguins, who I guess was just an absolute shock, had no idea he was going to be <laughs> traded, uh, for Mike Matheson and forward Colton Sevier. Uh, well, and again, all part of the game, right? Yeah, well, Pittsburgh's clearing house right now. they got to shuffle up those bottom two lines and see yeah. if they can 
get another run out of Gino and Sid. Yeah. Fill up that bottom six a little. Yeah. With some, some new blood. The clock is ticking. Yeah, yeah I agree. Also, uh, the Habs signed Jeff Petrie to a four-year deal. Uh, he had a great couple of years, the last couple of years in Montreal. Happy to see him signed uh, to a four-year deal. Uh, I think there was six point something million. So it was a pretty mu- pretty heavy price for Petrie, but he's playing big minutes. Yeah, so the Habs have been, you know, uh, working in the offseason. They have. Yeah. They've, they've done a few nice little moves so right. far. Jake Allen. Yes. Yeah, Edmondson. You mentioned him. Uh, yeah. You mentioned him on the last show. Joel yeah. Edmondson, uh, defenseman. Right. Also, uh, Bobby Ryan was bought out by the Senators. Um, I think this might be an opportunity for Bobby to get a clean slate and a clean start somewhere. I hope, wish him the best. Right. Hope he can bounce back and maybe, uh, well, he was nominated for Comeback Player of the Year this year. And he, I don't, well, Oscar Lindblom uh, was, right, the, of course. was the winner. But I think Bobby Ryan was certainly deserved, deserving of that as well. Yeah. Um, and one more uh, notable mention is Maritime Connection here for you, Terry. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. Mr. Paul McLean, coach, uh, NH, NHL coach, former Jack Adams Award winner with right. the Sens, yep. um, signed with the Leafs uh, as an assistant coach. Uh, although he wasn't born in Antigonish, he was raised there. Hi, uh, his yep. father was in the military. He was born in France, mm-hmm. uh, grew up in Antigonish, and uh, went on to coach in the NHL for many years. Sure. His son, AJ, was a friend of mine when he was playing for the Mooseheads, uh, uh, who's actually an assistant coach. I just found this out because I was looking up information about Paul McLean. Right. And uh, I was like, oh, I should check in on AJ to see where he ended up. And right. he'd played in the East Coast League for a few years. And and now he's an assistant coach in the AHL. Huh. So he's following in his father's footsteps. So yeah. Uh, yeah. great, great coach for the Leafs there. I think, uh, you know, Getting a veteran assistant coach is really, really important. So tough, uh, tough town to work in as far as hockey goes. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, they're bringing over uh, you know his experience uh, from yep. uh, from Ottawa. It'll be uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. Good luck, to definitely, him. Good definitely luck to good him. luck to Mr. McLean. He was interesting stats. He was drafted by the Blues. He represented Team Canada in the 1980 Winter Olympics yep. in Lake Placid. Yep. Um, he also scored 36 goals in his rookie season. And then was traded to the Jets and played on the line with Dale Howarchuk. And he had three 30-goal years and three 40-goal years wow. before being dealt to the Detroit Red Wings. So he was no slouch. No slouch. And, no, and, and when you look at him, like he's, he looks like he's a big uh, enforcer t- type yeah, of player, but he could also uh, put the puck in the net. Right. So Paul McClain, best of luck in Toronto. I can't get over that Paul McLean because I think it's I know. Paul McLean. I know. So there is another Paul McLean, and uh, he is an NHL coach. Speaking of Paul McLean, shout out to Paul, who's in in England right now, yeah, and uh, flying back to Hong Kong tomorrow. So we will have Paul back soon. Yeah, excited for that. Stay excited great. to have him back. A um, few more awards were handed out, Terry, before we get on uh, with the rest of the podcast tonight. Lynn Olson, a longtime champion for girls and women's hockey at all levels in the U.S., was the winner of the 2020 Lester Patrick Trophy for outstanding service to hockey in the United States. So congratulations, Lynn Olson. Uh, Leon Dreisaitl won the Hart and the Ted Lindsay Award. Hi. We'll be talking a little more about, uh, about Ted Lindsay tonight. We and, will be. Uh, it's a yeah. very interesting time to have you in talking about this this book and yeah. movie because we're going to tie it in with all these award win the names of these NHL sure. awards. Yeah. So Ted Lindsay's going to come up a little later on. Um, what do you think about that, Leon? Do you think uh, he was the man this year? Again, deserve it. Yeah. And and I think amongst the players, you know, the uh, the Ted Lindsay uh, holds a lot of cachet. Yeah, I that's, think it's the one. That's the one. That's, yeah. that's your peers yeah. saying that you're the man. That's right. You know, of course, the writers, etc., mm-hmm. vote on for the uh, for the uh, for the MVP for the heart. But yep. uh, you know, this this is from your peers. That's right. So uh, yeah, I think it's uh, peer reviewed. Peer reviewed. Yeah. And uh, and and de- and deservedly so. Right? Yeah. A hell of a hockey. Hard, hard to argue any of the nominees this year for, for sure. the heart. Uh, but yeah, congratulations, Leon. Uh, Kale McCarr won the Calder. Right. Again, deservedly. He was, uh, I thought Quinn Hughes, again, had an amazing season as well. Could have went to either one of those guys. And and I will say, watching the playoffs, you know, sort of, uh, I watched more hockey in, in this last couple of months than yeah. I have in quite a few years. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was obvious to me, I was talking to a friend of the show, Chris Lincoln, about mm-hmm. this Vancouver fan that he is. Yeah. And that Quinn Hughes, I mean, he jumped out to me. He's special. Yeah, right off the bat. 
you know, t- 20 years old, and, you know, even I could see mm-hmm. the intangibles. The poise, his poise with the puck. The, the poise, the, the right place at the right time, mm-hmm. and and always on the tape. Yeah, and first like pass. A, a step ahead, yeah. yeah, really special. Well, he's not a big player, so he has to be a step ahead, right. and he absolutely is. You're right, yeah. that's well said. He's definitely a step ahead. Um, Connor Hellebuck won the Vesna. Very, very deservedly as well. Uh, he had a hell of a season, and uh, without him, the Winnipeg Jets, I don't think, would have even uh, had a chance at a, at a playoff run this year. Right. Yeah, he was dominant. And uh, <clears throat> as Mr. Paul McLean uh, predicted, Roman Yossi won the, the Norris <laughs> Trophy this year. Uh, he, uh, Paul picked him, and, and I thought it was kind of an outside chance, but he, uh, he won easily, I guess, uh, with the voting. Mark Giordano won the Messier Leadership Award. That's a, that's a nice award to sure. win every year. Yeah. Another uh, another one that uh, you know speaks volumes. Yeah. So uh, Terry, tonight uh, we're going to get into uh, talking about net worth, and before we do, um, just uh, wanted to give a shout out to your Islanders who had a who had a hell of a run, and I'm sure you must have enjoyed watching them. Uh, Watching them uh, go on a little Cinderella run there. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I feel better, as I was saying, for uh, for uh, you know I get a I get a chance to get over to uh, Discovery Bay. Yeah, and uh, watch a game with Jeff Wall mm-hmm. and uh, and his sons. Yeah, he you know uh, indoctrinate them into the uh, into the cult of the Isles. Yeah, are they all in? Yeah, they're all in. Oh yeah, I'm sure can. they yeah. are. It's uh, it's it's. Uh, uh, watching a game, watching a playoff game with uh, Jeff Wall, it's tense. <laughs> right? I'm sure it, it was. is. It's it's tense. It, yeah. it was a lot of fun. That's great. And, uh, and Greg Flynn, of course, from the uh, from the ball, yeah. or from the uh, slow pitch. Yeah, yeah, another uh, big Isle fan. So uh, it was uh, again. I'm certainly not the only one here, and I'm certainly not the biggest in this town. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I was happy for the boys and and happy for the Islanders. They again. Some of them call it, oh, you know, it was garbage hockey, and uh, and it's and it's not that fun to watch. Um, uh, again, getting back into it, Barry Trotz, uh, again, seems to me to be, you know, the coach. Yeah, yeah, he seems to be able to take what he has. They buy in. Yeah, I guess they I absolutely mean, that's, do. That's something you see a lot in in football, right? Is is the ability to get guys to buy in. There's nothing more important, man, because like. If you get everyone on the same page on a team, yeah. that's the number one thing. Because everyone in the every team in the NHL has um, their strengths and their weaknesses. But if you can get everything out of everyone, yeah. you're going to have a chance to win every night. Yeah. And Barry Trotz just focuses on the strengths of his team, and 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 he pulls it off somehow. Yeah, that's right. I think it's incredible to watch, and I, and it is a bit boring sometimes. You know, there's a lot of neutral zone clogging, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, just keeping the puck to the outside, not taking a lot of chances, but. It, winning is winning. Winning is winning. Yeah, and it's, it's like watching a good pitching yeah. matchup, you know? Like, defense is fun to watch, too. Hi. All right, folks, tonight's episode is brought to you by The Big Bite. Ah, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. It's time to talk about some food. You like burgers, ribs, hot dogs, milkshakes, or even some poutine? Well, you can find them all in one spot. That place is called The Big Bite. They got a cheaper than cheap deal on chicken wings. Three bucks. Only three bucks a wing. Tuesday nights in North Point. Wednesday night in Shektong Choi. Every Thursday night at the Big Bite Flame and Grill in Shektong Choi is steak night. For a hundred bucks plus a little bit of service charge, you can get a 10 ounce premium Canadian steak with your choice of sauce and unlimited fries or salad. Right about now is when I used to talk about a Thanksgiving special that they had. I even remind you that Christmas was coming, and they had turkey. And speaking from experience, it was delicious. Speaking of delicious, you should go over to their North Point location and try their PB&J burger. That's peanut butter and jam on a burger. Sounds gross, but it's not. Don't agree with me? Come on over to the studio, and we'll drop the gloves. Check out more information on their Facebook site at The Big Bite HK. That's The Big Bite HK. Go fill your belly. All prices are in Hong Kong dollars. All right, Terry. Net worth. Let's kick it off. Yes, well, if Mystery Alaska was the Rocky of hockey movies, then net worth is the Norma Ray. That's the 1979 kitchen sink drama featuring Sally Fields' Oscar-winning performance as a woman who organizes a union at her local mill. The true-ish story of NHL players attempting to form an association. Not a union. Very good point, Chris, as we'll see. 
during the 1956-57 season. It features an unlikely protagonist, prototypical villains, and production values that scream Canadian Broadcasting Corporation teledrama. <laughs> it opens with the disclaimer that net worth is a dramatic interpretation of events which took place in the United States and Canada in the 1950s. Certain characters, scenes, and dialogue are fictional. And we're going to do our best here to separate the fiction from the hard fact and fill in with some historical background. Mm. Uh, the movie was, is, topical. It was originally broadcast on CBC on the heels of the 1994 lockout and uh, is available now in its entirety on YouTube. And uh, it, it provides an entertaining look at a forgotten but inevitable piece of NHL history. Yeah, I love this story, Terry. So uh, it's based on the book? Based on the book, uh, which we have right here in yeah. the studio, uh, Net Worth, Exploding the Myths of Pro Hockey by David Cruz and Allison Griffiths as the main source material for the, for the film, and uh, they both get writing credits on the movie. Published in 1991, it's an exhaustive look at the, well, it's a family show here, so let's be polite and say tawdry business side of <laughs> hockey. Uh, the events uh, in the movie come from the uh, the first few chapters. Yeah. And you had a chance to uh, read it, Chris? Your, yeah, your it's, a, it's a very easy read. It's super interesting. Anyone who wants to know anything about the, the history of the, the, the business side of the hockey, I mean, it, it's yeah. just an absolute eye-opener, things that uh, maybe a lot of us aren't aware of. That's right. The uh, the stuff they got away with. Yeah, right? pretty much. For, for a long time. Yeah. So, yeah, very uh, informative, interesting uh, yeah. And infuriating. Inf <laughs> totally. Infuriating yeah. read. Yeah. I, if you watch the movie, by the end of it, I wanted to just jump through the screen and grab <laughs> Gordy Howe by the neck and just shake him. Just give him a shake. Is just exactly give him a it. shake. Aye. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, the thing is, unlike today, where uh, you know professional sports are seen by many as millionaires squabbling with billionaires, mm -hmm. yeah, and many fans find it hard to sympathize with either side, yeah. the events shown in this movie occurred at a time when the owners had all the money and all the power. In 1957, the average salary of the school teacher in Canada was around $5,500. Yeah. The average NHL salary, six teams of 20, was $8,000. Teams at that time were making millions. Yes. Yeah. So Nobody knew except nobody that. Nobody knew, yes. And modern-day fans, Chris, will recognize many names in this story. Yes. Yeah, some come off, some of them come off with their reputations intact, and, uh, and others... Not so much. Not so much. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot about some of these names learn, reading and, and watching yeah. this movie. I mean, yeah. you just kind of think of these iconic names and just you don't even bother to, to find out about them right. sometimes, yeah, you know, as a kid. It's just a given. It's just a given that that person, his name is etched in hockey history. It's right. really cool to see where they come from. So let's start with, uh, with the hero, Ted Lindsay. Terrible Ted. Terrible Ted. Yeah. And, and again, he was a most unlikely organizer because, as is said in the movie, everyone in hockey hated his guts. Uh, Leafs owner Con Smythe especially because he was an Ontario kid from Renfrew mm -hmm. who had signed with Detroit. Wings GM Jack Adams hated his guts, but he had to tolerate him because he was a star. Make no mistake, Gordie Howe was the best player in the game, Ted Lindsay was the engine that drove the Red Wings to four Stanley Cups between 1950 and 1955. Yeah. Uh, Lindsay started the uh, hand off the cup, cup over the head tradition. The right? victory lap. The victory lap, hand right. it off to your teammate. That oh. was, yeah, that was Ted Lindsay started that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. However, he was also the reason the league came up with penalties for elbowing and kneeing. <laughs> yeah. And and I had to ask you, yeah. uh, kneeing is still on the books. It's still on the books. Right. Uh, <clears throat> and like, uh, that 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 was the kind of thing that kept happening to Gord or to Bobby Orr, right? Because he was so fast, and you're cutting through the neutral zone, and you're deking at really fast speeds. Yeah, you're going by a guy at a last second. You kind of you know you jump to one side, the yeah. knee comes out as an automatic reaction. Yeah, it's really but it's also a very dirty play because sure. it's a, it's a career ender. Yeah, yeah, and and again, this was you know part of. Ted Lindsay's. Well, that's part of why he was the engine. Yeah. Well, yeah. and and again, uh, he was smallish, not yeah. a, not a big guy. You know, five foot eight, a buck sixty five. Yeah. So did what he had to do. Uh, an opponent called him a, a walking, talking smirk, <laughs> which I which I think is a, a great description. The smirk is key. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, he knew it. Yeah. Yeah, he knew it. Yeah. And and now, Chris, today, can you give me an example? Oh, there's uh, all kinds. Uh, there must be. But I, when you think of the smirk now, the the 
the picture in my head right now is Brendan Gallagher, who's like, teeth are bloody during one of the playoff games, and he's just in front of the neck getting his head pounded in, comes out of the pile, just smiling, just smiling. blood dripping from his teeth. Like, that's the ultimate pest. We've got a yeah. few of them. Uh, Marshawn, of course. Of course. Antoine Roussel is a great, great pest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and of course, Brendan Gallagher. Yeah. But Ted Lindsay, uh, and, and also, you know, for a guy five foot eight, to be creating space for players on his line. That's right. That's incredible. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a, that smirk was something that people feared. Yep. So did he really stand at center ice at Maple Leaf Gardens and pretend to shoot the crowd with his stick? Oh, man, isn't that a great moment? Yeah. Yeah. And that did happen. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And, uh, although the filmmakers, they played with the timeline. Yeah. You know, and this real situation was much more intense. Right. During the 1956 semifinals against the Maple Leafs, the Wings took the first two at home. When the series shifted to Toronto, an angry, disillusioned Leafs fan... Well, lucky those have disappeared. <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't see those anymore. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, a Leafs fan, he, uh, he called two local newspapers, and he said, don't worry about Howe and Lindsay tonight. I'm going to shoot them. Yeah. Trailing in the third, Howe made it 3-2. Lindsay tied it at three before scoring the winner in overtime. Uh, he then proceeded to use his stick like a machine gun to shoot the crowd, for uh, which he got a round of applause. Of course. Yeah, and and I was going to ask you, Chris, yeah. you know, what, what would happen today with a threat like that, but uh, there's no crowd. Well, I, I think it would all depend on who did it, <laughs> because I think some people could get away with that as a, as a unique celebration. Do you, do you remember when Solani scored his... Was it his 70th or something, right, his yeah, rookie year? Yeah. And he threw his glove up and he shot his glove? Right, yeah. I wonder if he got that from that from uh, Ted Lindsay. I don't know, man. That, that just came to me. I just thought of that. Yeah. But no, uh, I don't know if anybody's getting away with no. uh, any and, and, fake shooting of crowds. Right. And, yeah. and with, As, the, with the lack of crowds here now, I mean, you know. He, might have got away with it. Yeah, sure. In, <laughs> in the playoffs. Yeah, Inspector Gadget could have solved that crime. They yeah. Could've, they could have figured it out pretty exactly. easily. So, so what, about, uh, what about, what did you think of the hockey action in the movie the hockey action was okay yeah. i did i think they uh there was a couple camera angles that the weren't particularly puck, puck interesting cam? the puck cam the puck cam that was strange they were derided why did they love that so much I, I, and again i looked and i couldn't find really anything so i i think it's maybe one of two things maybe it was a tape to the end of their stick or I, something? I, well i think they tried to have it from the puck's point of view yeah and yeah. and you saw it a couple of times when the puck was looking <laughs> up and you saw it a couple of times when you were just looking at the puck it, yeah and it was, it was very strange and like i said i remember when there were reviews yeah it, when watching this live back in the 90s that you know but i, I really couldn't find anything on it i i'd say maybe it was either uh you know this is the cbc maybe yeah. it was a mid-level you know governmental decision you Could know? have been. Yeah. yeah. Or, or the director, who we'll see, is a very talented man. Yeah. Eh, swinging for the fences. Just trying something Just new. Just trying something new. And, and it didn't really, that, that part of it didn't really work Do you think out. back then they were already anticipating the fact, like, well, hockey was coming on TV. Were people able to follow the puck? Right. Were they experimenting with that whole idea? Yeah, right. You know, that mid-90s yeah. where, uh, where the Fox... The streaking puck. Yeah, you know, exactly. Yes, yeah. that's the, the exact same timeline, I bet. Yeah. I would not be surprised if it was something along those lines. Right. The, uh, the action, though, maybe, maybe, um, maybe from a distance it wasn't the best, yeah. but when it got up close... You know, they had the details, right? Mm -hmm. They they had the, the unis and the old skates. The equipment, the equipment was great. was great, yeah. and uh, that was a great fight. Oh, my god! That was a great fight. The use of the slow-mo camera, right? And uh, Slow-mo makes everything better. Right, you know, and he, uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy Thompson. From it was the like Leafs. a two-minute fight. Yeah, it was like Jimmy Thompson from the Leafs. He yeah. throws the gloves yes. at Ted Lindsay, yeah. and, and then the, and the ref. The linesman is holding, is holding his holding, arms back. Holding him back, you yeah. know, a little overt symbolism there, eh? Nothing's going to hold our man Ted back. Exactly. But uh, once they get throwing them. Oh, my God. Yeah. They both was, took a lot of punches. Yeah, in fight. It, was, it was well done, and the, yeah. crowd, the crowd went wild. Of course. Right. The, uh, the, the rest of it, again, the production design, the, the period details. Yeah. You know, some great hats. Yeah, of great course. Great hats, great overcoats. Yeah. The cars were good. Uh, the smoky brasserie. Mm. Where they where they hold the uh, the, the, meetings. the initial meetings, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean it, it looked good, and and you got to remember this is the CBC. Yeah, they're not spending twenty eight million dollars US like Hollywood Pictures did for right. Mystery and as Alaska. far as like if you were to compare the hockey action, it's comparable. Yeah. to those other yeah, higher know. higher end Disney movies. Yeah. and stuff. you yeah. know they had their couple of set pieces, and then but because again, it's it's this is the story of 
the business side of the game. Exactly. Yeah. In the movie, uh, at the introductory yep. meeting of that NHLPA, right, after they have the meeting at the brasserie, Ted Lindsay says, I fought every man at this table. Yeah. And that was true. These guys did not like each other at all. There was no fraternization like there is now, no off-season golf together. It was a real hatred, and that was something that the owners liked and encouraged. It was a divide-and-conquer strategy they used against the players. Mm -hmm. And you had Barry Beck on the show. That's right. He mentioned that. 20 20 years later. That's right, yeah. He mentioned the fact that, you know, players never talked to each other after the games, and he got a hello from uh, and a good luck from Bobby Orr. Yeah. And that was like kind of a big moment because yeah. players just didn't do that kind no, of thing. No, and, and this is 20 years later. Yeah. You know, the late 78, I think. It slow changes. It. Slow changes. Yeah. Uh, but it has changed. But it has changed. Right. And yeah. and you had Paul McGoey on the show. Mm-hmm. And Paul spoke to the effect that this is had on the competition level within the league. Yeah. Uh, but strictly from a business point of view, i.e. the owners, yeah. they've always known there's only two teams in the NHL, <laughs> right? Management and players. Mm-hmm. And the players spending time has only helped their bottom line. Now, the movie's depiction of the 1956 All-Star Game is accurate. Lindsay and the other players, Doug Harvey from the Canadiens, Leafs captain Jimmy Thompson, Bill Gadsby from the Rangers, Gus Mortson from the Blackhawks, Fernie Flamen. Love that name. The great name from the Bruins. Yeah. Yeah, they had to sneak around. Yeah. For, they, yeah. yeah, for fear of management, mm-hmm. getting, getting wind of their plans. Yeah. So, and in this movie, management is represented by Jack Adams. By Jack and Jolly yeah. Jack. That's yeah. right. And that's, that's This Jack. is your coach of the year, folks. Yes, that's, this is who this is named after. Yeah. And uh, that's according to the sports writers, Jolly Jack. That's the sports writers who he had in his pocket. Yeah, who he wrote for. Right. And, <laughs> and again, let's be polite for this family show. Yeah, good and, idea. And, and call him a tyrant. Okay, that's All a right? good one. Now, Jack Adams was a hockey lifer with a real inner darkness. The only man to win the cup as a player and as a coach and as a GM. Mm-hmm. He led the NHL in penalty minutes in 1922-23 with the Toronto St. Pats. And Chris, we've already agreed on toughness back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be tough to play in the NHL. It was a different level. It was, toughness yeah, at that tough, point. yeah, it was super duper sociopathic yeah. tough. To if lead. you can walk, yeah, you're playing. <laughs> to, uh, to lead Batista, lead the league in penalty minutes in the 1920s. Yeah, that was that was a that was a, that was a level of toughness. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, Adams coached the Detroit Cougars in 1927-28. Two years later, they became the Detroit Falcons, and two years after that, when they were bought by James Norris Sr. Remember that name, mm-hmm. the Detroit Red Wings. He would remain head coach GM until 1947 and GM until 1963. That's a 36-year tenure, and that's one of the two records we'll see tonight. That. That's never going to be touched, right? Likely not. No, I, th- I think the cliche now is is the, the the guy, the GM. He's hired to be fired. Yeah, you know, is is the way it works now. Mm-hmm. So uh, Adams ruled by fear. Yeah, yeah, he really did walk around with train tickets to Edmonton. <laughs> yeah, flashing them around, flashing them around, and he dispatched players to the minors on a whim for yeah. disciplinary reasons. Yeah, and and again, Chris, the, the game has changed. Yeah. It's it's always it's always morphing, but. Is there a coach, a GM, who still gets by with fear as as the main motivator? I really don't think there's anyone left right. that gets by with fear. It's just impossible now. And it, we've seen it in the past, and, and a lot of those coaches have either, A, changed their tune a little bit. Right. You take uh, Tortorella, for Tortorella, example. Of course, yeah, I mean, would he's, be the example. He's I the example of. that pops up right, right. away. So yeah. he was a guy who, you know did things his way yeah. and he he would have been one of those guys who used fear as a motivator right um there are lots of other guys who do who did yeah um mike keen sure uh keenan sorry Keenan, yeah there was lots of them but uh i don't think there i don't think there there there's a place for them today right uh so there's there's really none of them left yeah well, mike babcock was probably the latest who you know maybe people didn't realize how how he instilled fear in his players well, and stuff kind go. of yes. behind the scenes yeah yeah and, and, and that's it in, in, still behind the scenes yeah you know when that locker room door closes yeah. i'm sure there's some guys that that's right probably massage the ego but then there's other guys who realize that you know they yep. kick, they kick butt yeah totally yeah, just to get it going so so the scene with gordy howe and jack adams negotiating um house contract seems like a key moment in the movie and do you think it's? Uh, do you think that's the way it really was? Do you think it was accurate? Yeah, I, th- I think very much so. And and uh, uh, Gordy Howe 
was the most shabbily treated star in all sports. Yeah, that's what we learned from this movie. Yeah, Jack, Jack Adams used Howe as a salary cap. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Yeah, the first official cap in sports was in the NBA in 1984-85. Other owners knew what Howe was paid, and that became the market rate. Jack Adams abused Howe's trust, small-town naivete, team spirit, good nature, his very Canadianness. Could he have been that naive? Is uh, it even possible? And, and again, a mixture of that and just his good nature, as yeah. I said, as just what I said. And, yeah. and it, it, he got taken advantage of. Yeah. He took advantage. He got taken advantage it of. It just seems surreal to yeah. see a guy that who's the stature of Gordie yeah. Howe, um, his presence, yeah. to not be able to to handle himself a little bit better in those situations. Not and in it's those strange. Situations. Yeah, yeah, I mean, not in those I guess situations. On the you ice, know, players were left to handle them, manage themselves back on, then. On the ice, he was one thing, and yeah. off the ice, I think that's, you know, very common for a lot of them, right? Right. Yeah, but but again, he's, he's a small-town boy, floral Saskatchewan. Just wanted to play hockey. Just wanted to play hockey, and yeah. they played on that. Totally. You know, they took advantage of that. And, and again, uh, at this point in the NHL, uh, all but two of the players were from Canada. So he was uh, every year given a blank contract, every year gave himself a $1,000 raise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, conversely, as a rookie in 1966, Bobby Orr signed for $25,000 a year and a $25,000 bonus. Mm-hmm. Gordie Howe, after 19 years in the NHL, was making $27,000. Yeah, he probably could have written 27000 on that contract 15 years prior, and they would have just been okay with it. Sure. Yeah, but uh, Bruce Norris again, who took over from Jack Adams mm-hmm. with the with the negotiating, right? He tried to tell how that that salary was was uh, exaggerated, but he grudgingly started to pay him more. In 1968, Bobby Bond was traded to uh, to, uh, to traded to Detroit, and he set Howe straight, telling Howe that his negotiating had held all the players mm-hmm. back. Correctly guessing Howe's salary of forty five thousand dollars and then dumbfounding him by telling him that he was making $67,000. Right. Bond said, Bond said to uh, ask for 150000 next year. Yeah. Yeah. Howe backed off, asked for 100000 and did get it. Yeah. And Nora said, I hope that makes Colleen happy. Gosh. And she was I... just, she took, uh, she was a favorite target of criticism mm-hmm. for, from all players, all people all over. The NHL. So know. as his salary went up, they just poked more into the fact that his money was going to her. Right. Exactly. Right. Terrible. And and again, it, it was that harpy he was married to. It wasn't yeah. our boy Gordy. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. wasn't our, our boy couldn't, Gordy. Couldn't no, be. Could be our boy yeah. Gordy. It was that. Yeah. That harpy in the background. So. But there was so much like there were so many secrets going on at the time. Just it, unbelievable that it lasted that many years, and the owners were. They were even able to get away with it for that long, as, as we see. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. And and we're getting again, Chris, yeah. to to the to the worst part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that pension that they touted as the best in all sports. The best in all sports. They yeah. kept repeating that. Eh? Oh, over and over. Yeah, and with, without a doubt, the most egregious lie of them all. Yeah, yeah. A player contributed nine hundred dollars a year, while owners paid six hundred dollars a player, but it was not their money. Right. Two thirds came from the gate of the All Star Game for which the players were not paid, mm-hmm. and a 25-cent surcharge on playoff tickets took care of their contribution. After 26 seasons in the NHL, Gordie Howe was getting $13,000 annually from his pension. Isn't that incredible? Just again, yeah. <sighs> Thank God for Ted Lindsay. <laughs> so let's take a look at uh, another famous uh, character in the movie, uh, Busher Jackson. So the guy who's selling broken sticks outside of uh, Maple Leaf Gardens. Yeah. And uh, Larry Suharchak. Right. So the Red Wing who gets hurt and gets ends up getting cut from the team. What can you tell us about those two stories? Yes. Well, now, the big thing to realize is that the story of uh, Busher Jackson is true. Yeah. Whereas Larry Suharchak is, is an invented character. Right. So a representation. A representation, sure. Yeah. Uh, and again, Harvey Busher Jackson broke into the NHL at 18 in 1929. Mm-hmm. He played left wing on the kid line beside center Joe Primo, Hall of Fame 1963, and winger Charlie Conacher, Hall of Fame 1961. They led the Leafs to the 1932 Stanley Cup. By 1939, the notorious partier and big spender had drunk his way out of town before spending five years in New York and Boston, and in later years was reduced by his addictions to Toronto's streets. The movie alludes to the Hall of Fame 
you hear Ted Lindsay say the line, uh, Busher doesn't need a plaque. Yeah. He, ne- he needs a place to sleep. Con Smythe personally kept Jackson out of the hall. Smythe said Jackson lacked integrity and character, but he had no problem with Jimmy Norris, convicted felon, right. entering the hall in 1962. Mm-hmm. When Jackson finally entered the hall in 1971, five years after his death, Con Smythe quit the Hall of Fame committee in protest. Unbelievable. Petty. Yeah. Now, Busher Jackson would have been a cautionary tale to players. Here was a superstar from the previous generation, and this is what had become of him. So the filmmakers use him as an archetype for mm-hmm. all those players over the years who've been let down by the league's failure to address addiction and mental health issues. Yeah, completely. Yeah, and again, on your show, Chris, yeah. earlier you had Pascal Moroncy on, yeah. who yeah. spoke very eloquently about this, yeah. who, who said, you know, uh, great strides are being made, mm-hmm. but... There's a long, long way to go. Yeah, and, it's and a it's, long list. Oh, it's a list that's that is too long. Yeah. And and it gets back to your talk with Barry Beck. Yeah, Mark Mark Pavlich. Mark Pavlich. Yeah. You know? It's and uh, the, the thing with, with Barry Beck listening to that was how he felt it was incumbent upon himself to do something. I know. Isn't that that's what's so wrong. Yeah. And 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 I mean, you know, so he contacts the league and and they kind of tell him, well, yeah, we have we have safeguards etc in place, but you're better off maybe talking to the players association. Right. And the players association said, "Well, yes, sure, we do have programs etc. However, mm-hmm. in this instance maybe it'd be better to talk to the alumni organization." Yeah. And um, you know, so it's not that it's not that, uh, you know, again, safeguards don't exist. It's right. just that people, guys, still fall through the cracks. They always do. Yeah, and, and, and it it's, seems uh, too easy. It does. It, it happens. And that this isn't some, This isn't just a sport thing. I mean, this is uh, in every industry and yeah. in every facet of, of human life. Yeah. We've got people struggling with problems. Yeah. And, and it just it take, took a long time before people in sports especially, seems, were you know, felt strong enough and capable enough to, to be able to come out and talk about it. Yeah, that's it. So, and again, it's that, you know, you have that attitude. You know, you have to have the physical attributes to right. play sports at, at a professional level. Yeah. But you have to have a, a mental toughness as well. Yeah. And, you know, once you get lost in, you know, uh, mental health or addiction issues, yeah. you know, they're the type of guys that have been pushing it through all by themselves so far. Exactly. So, yeah, it's kind of hard for, for them to reach out and kind of hard for for people to reach out to them Mm -hmm. and and again this is the sad thing about this whole you know we're talking about 1956-57 if they had have been successful here it would have been a a, as it turns out a 10-year head start Mm -hmm. and hopefully you know we'd have been 10 some of these things might have been ameliorated so somewhat right you know there's there's no real cure for it as you said it's it's part of the human condition it is it's part of human condition but it's also something that like we as men and and athletes and and just we need to we need to be more aware of it now more than ever indeed and just continue to do what we're doing yeah yeah so, that's right yeah so there's a lot of good people and we're we're hearing these stories more and more often like thank thank god we are because you know it's it's just it's what's needed that's and, it, that's and, exactly right yeah. the first step is is to speak up about it yeah yeah so let's move on to uh the, another great 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 name Larry yeah. Suharchuk. Larry Suharchuk, yeah. <laughs> Who we can't find, we can't find any history of this oh, guy. Oh no, this this is a this is a fictionalized <laughs> character. Yeah, this is a and and again, he's another archetype. Yeah. Right, the fringe player who's disposed of as soon as he's no longer useful mm-hmm. or gets hurt and finds nothing to fall back on. That line from the movie, "I don't have as many friends in this town as I thought." Ooh, oh, I know. That's that's harsh, eh? Sad. Know? Everybody's your friend when you're on the top. It's yeah. Yeah, and then once it's over. You know where where do I go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, there there was and is tremendous pressure to play hurt, right? Someone's always after your job, and after being cut, medical access and benefits disappear. Careers in any pro- professional sport have always been short. Now back then it was a shorter season, mm-hmm. and players could and did work in the off season, but many had only a high school education, if that, so it meant that it was menial or manual labor. God forbid you got hurt towards the end of the season. You know, if you broke something and couldn't do that summer job, well, that's tough. Too bad for you. You better be healthy for training camp. That's right. Yeah. Players were expressly forbidden or strongly dissuaded from doing promotional work, and returning to school was viewed with suspicion. Also, after retirement, there were far fewer opportunities to reinvent yourself within the game. 
the media jobs, the personal training, that didn't exist back then. Mm -hmm. And the coaching and scouting opportunities were far fewer than there are today. Mm -hmm. And now, Chris, you get into another list that's too long. And these are guys, you know, these are guys not, these are your, you know, your rank and file. These are your, you know, your third and fourth line guys. And, and these guys have been broken by this game physically. And, and getting back to your point, um, you know, there, there's always in our society, uh, you know, we, we always like looking at the car crash. You know, it used to be the National Enquirer. Yeah. Uh, now it's TMZ. Right. So if you screw up drugs, alcohol, do something silly, yeah. you know, they're, they're going to be out there trying to get their clicks. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing really, uh, you know, click worthy about a guy who played in the NHL in the early 1990s and now went through four knee operations and now all of a sudden he needs a new hip. Right. And, exactly. you know, but there's, again, a list of these guys way too long. I'll throw a few names. Mm -hmm. uh, Walt Podubny, yeah. Kurt Walker, Todd Ewan, Wade Belak. Yeah. Now, they might mean something to hardcore fans of the game. Yeah. But to a lot of people, those are just old men walking down the street and walking funny. Right. And, again, there are, I'm sure, uh, you know, uh, safeguards and programs in place. Mm -hmm. But people fall through the cracks they always do they always do they always do and uh let's take a look at at the owners here terry and how how accurately portrayed do you think they were because like you know <laughs> it's not it's not it's a very not a, nice portrayal it is not it's and not something that you know as a hockey fan you would like be proud to to show your grandkids it's uh it's not uh it's it's very accurate yeah yeah it's not very nice but it's very accurate and and chris we'd be remiss if we didn't talk for a minute about maybe the most powerful man in the history of the nhl yeah and that's james norris senior yeah and a lot of people wouldn't have known you know the father of jimmy norris who owned the blackhawks yep bruce norris who owned the red wings and and was a feature in the movie yeah the, those uh, those two uh, his two sons yeah are, are featured in the movie but mm -hmm. it was the old man who that, was that really started this yeah. this whole show yeah and uh con smythe ran toronto uh Harlan molson ran montreal the four american teams were controlled by james norris who flourished in 1920s Capone-era Chicago as a grain magnate, railway owner, and stock trader. I love how they were able to <coughs> tie him with, uh, with, the, with Al, Capone Al Capone and the mobs. Oh, you had to be tough. Oh, man. Right? Yeah, coming out, of that, uh, coming out of that milieu. Yeah. He was among the first to realize that having a team was nice, but owning the venue was lucrative. Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't worried about hockey. Oh, man, no. And, and other, other capitalists, they took note. So besides using the arena for other legitimate events, you charge your own team an exorbitant amount of rent. Mm -hmm. You underreport seating capacity and scalp tickets. You hide the ancillary profits, beer, food, souvenirs, through, mis through misleading expenses and creative accounting. You hide actual team ownership behind shell companies and handshake agreements. All of these things had the added bonus of allowing the owners to play the fragility card. Yeah. Since we don't make any money. They were just scraping by, yeah. just in it for the love of the game. Yes. You know, if the players start making demands, then the whole thing could collapse. Yeah, it's done. Oh, my so gosh. Norris had to chase off a rival before getting control of the Coliseum in Chicago. Mm. Then, install, then installed Arthur Wirtz as his front man. The Wirtz family owns the Blackhawks to this day. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, he gained control of Madison Square Garden in New York and the Rangers and loaned money to the Adams family in Boston, who owned the Bruins. Finally, he was the sole owner of the Olympia in Detroit, and the Red Wings were his team. Jack Adams ran the day-to-day. -day. Mm -hmm. So Norris controlled three teams and had one beholden to him. He solidified his power in the 1940s with Clarence Campbell as commissioner. Campbell was a great face for the game. He was a Rhodes Scholar, a lawyer, and a former NHL referee. But his main job was to do what the owners told him. And you saw the great mm -hmm. line in the movie, right? Stick to making up the goddamn schedule, Clarence. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's all he was there for, right? Just the front man. Yeah. Yeah. So James Norris died in 1952, leaving his sons, Jimmy and Bruce, in charge of the Empire, and Jack Adams to run amok in Detroit. During the original Six era, NHL stood for Norris House League. I love that. That is great. Yeah, and, and, and what effect did that have on the game? And Chris, you can share some, some stats with the listeners. Yeah, so um, the original six ran from 1942 when uh, the Brooklyn Americans folded until expansion in 1967. 
So from 1942 to 56, the Habs, Leafs, Wings, each won five cups. From 56 to 67, the Habs or Leafs won every cup except for 1961 when the Blackhawks won for the first time since 1938. And last until 2010. Yep. That was a long, long drought. Uh, the Bruins didn't win a cup, missed the playoffs eight years in a row in the 1960s, and yet outdrew the Celtics, who won nine NBA championships in the 1960s. So there's no money to be made in hockey. No one, no one will go. No one cares. That daft. Imagine, right? Yeah. The Rangers didn't win a cup. Yeah. They missed the playoffs 18 times in 25 years. But they played to a full house pretty much every night at Madison Square Garden. And, and, and MSG. You know, people love hockey, Chris. They do. They do. They really do. That's right. And, yeah. this, and this myth that the NHL could only support six teams was extremely harmful. Yeah. Yeah. They had legitimate offers throughout the 1950s and 60s to expand. But they preferred to keep it all to themselves. Well, of course, if if it had have expanded, then all of their money and all of their books and everything would have came out, and Indeed. and they would have just lost money. Yeah. yeah. And and when they did expand in 1967, yeah, they made a mess of that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's that's a story for another time. We could we could talk expansion yeah. another time for yeah, sure, without a doubt. And and again, this keeping it small, Chris. Yeah. It hurts the game. Because Absolutely. It hurts. Uh, every, anytime you keep so, try to keep something to yourself, it hurts. Yeah. No matter what industry it is. You need competition. You need you need to expand your product. You need it to be showcased in more places. And yeah, yeah. So let's circle back uh, to the movie now and talk a bit a little bit about the talent, both in front and behind the camera. Yeah. Now this was the first non Hollywood film we looked at. Uh, it won't be the last. We have a, a couple of others in the hopper. Mm -hmm. um, so some standards are going to be different. the The idea of uh, box office isn't uh, isn't important now. And uh, in this case, uh, nor are TV ratings. No. Because it's on the, uh, it's it's CBC. On, on the CBC. Yeah. yeah. Now, that being said, this was a lauded production. Mm. Uh, it won four Gemini Awards, uh, Canada's Emmys. And uh, we don't get to watch Canadian television much anymore from over here in Hong Kong, Chris. But, but the cast is populated by faces familiar to any regular viewer. Totally. Yeah, then and now. Uh, including the English actor Aidan Devine, uh, who does a good job as Ted Lindsay. He did. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the guy, a guy named Kevin Conway played Gordy Howe. He didn't do much after this. Um, but I thought he was fine as the uh, as the conflicted superstar. Do you think he portrayed Gordy Howe's personality? I, I, I think I was think, he that shy? And I like... think I sh I, and and again, uh, it was like almost like a, a lack of personality. Right. And I, I'd say he did a good I'd job. Say of that. Th I'd say that was pretty well accurate. Cool. Right. Yeah. yeah. Again, just a small town boy with otherworldly talent. Yeah. And you know, when you're that big, you know, literally and figuratively, there's. It's coming at you from all sides. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. And again, I, I thought the actor, like I say, he didn't, he didn't go on really to do anything after this. Right. But, but uh, you know, fine here. Uh, it's the director of, uh, of this movie that uh, was, was the real talent, right? A guy named Jerry Sicaritti. Uh, he's won seven Geminis for Best Director for his work on such iconic Canadian fare as North of 60, Due South, Schitt's Creek, uh, as well as movie biopics on people as diverse as Pierre Trudeau and Shania Twain. Mm. That uh, locker room scene after the players organize, you know, the camera angles he uses to make Gordie Howe look so small and Jack Adams so big and Ted Lindsay so defiant. Just, I, I, I mean, great work. It, the, it looks good. I can picture it now when he's going around the dressing room. Yeah. And, Are you for uh, this? Yeah. And yeah. then the. At, when they finally come to ten, Ted Lindsay, he's the only one standing yeah, up. He's got he, one leg up on yeah, the bench. That's exactly right. Hand on his hip. Hand on the hip. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was totally, uh, yeah. Def totally great. defined. Great work. Great work. And yeah. uh, I, I liked at the end too um, the uh, the inevitable what became of them sequence. Uh, he chose uh, the JS standard Paper Moon. Right, yeah. the, the Molly Johnson version. Yeah, uh, and it wouldn't be make believe if you believe in me. <laughs> yeah. Just oh, just uh, yeah, it's amazing work. Yeah. There I, was one thing I wasn't totally impressed with, which was the the puck cam. Yeah, well, so it, again, sigh. Uh, but but it might have been an experimental. That's right. View of like yeah. trying to, you know, show a different perspective. So. Maybe just you know a little bit ahead of his time because yeah, it was a little right. choppy. It was a little weird, but yeah, that's right. but it certainly was ahead of its time, that's and right. it might and have he, been our introduction to like 
the streaky pack. Yeah, yeah, which which didn't didn't last very didn't last very long. No, well. it didn't. Yeah. But again, uh, yeah, swing, swung for the fences. Yeah, totally. That, all that being said, he was a very steady hand at the wheel. But, mm-hmm. you know, without a doubt, this is Al Waxman's show. Yeah. Right? And and Al Waxman, he looked like Jack Adams, who was a little round man. Again, I'm trying to think of other things that Al Waxman has been in. Because <laughs> very, very familiar character. Now you're teasing me. I am. Yeah, it's good. That's right. <laughs> again, Jack, uh, uh, Al Waxman here. Again, yeah. just such a such a great job yeah. at, at 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 showing the conflicting emotions. You know, the volcanic temper uh, versus the guile of uh, of uh, of what uh, you know the the complex driven man that uh, that uh, Jack Adams was. Yeah. And of course, uh, Chris. Yeah. Let's hear it. Uh, known to Canadians for all time, of course, Al Waxman is the... The king of Kensington. What a guy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I bust your balls here yeah. sometime on this for not catching up, uh, you know, with some of the older references. Yeah. That show I ran, try. That show ran from 1975 to 1980. So before for, my before time, I wasn't time, even little, thought of. Literally. Yeah. So uh, good job. Kudos to you <laughs> yeah. for, uh, for being up to, uh, up to speed uh, on uh, on Al Waxman. Well, I'm I'm glad I have you around to keep me uh, <laughs> keep, keep, keep me on my toes. Make sure I know my history. <laughs> uh, I can't be I can't be on here uh, talking about hockey if I don't know where it all started, Terry. <laughs> so you. so the battle lines are drawn. Yeah. So is this movie accurate about how the actual story plays out? And can we start with the opening scene for a sec? Because I don't think we we need to talk about this opening scene. What the uh, the practice? Yeah, Jack yes. Adams walking on the ice and just right. absolutely berating. tearing them, a, tearing them a new one. Yeah, yeah, and and again, uh, as as you as it was shown, they lost the finals to those frogs. The frogs, yeah, yeah in in Montreal the year before. Yep. And uh, and again, a great a great scene setter because uh, the kid laughs at the Ted Lindsay joke. Yeah, and he cuts him right away. Right, right away. Yeah, right. You know, and, and, and again, that that sets that sets the the template for the movie. You know, for for the for the fictional part of yeah. it. Now you're coming back in, and as you said, here we get back to to the the fact. Yeah. And and it is it, it's very accurate, but um, again the the timeline of events. Yeah. You know the uh, which is is common a, a common ploy in uh, in these you know in a, in a fact fiction movie. You mm-hmm. know they'll move things around. It, yeah. it does happen, but maybe not at it's the cer- that, cer- that scene, though, certainly set the tone. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, and, and right off the bat on the ice. Yeah. And, and now it, it plays through. At the timeline events, you know, again, for, for continuity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the players were immediately and repeatedly deemed ungrateful, selfish, commie rat bastards yeah. by the press. Yeah. Uh, Lindsay and Doug Harvey especially were called rabble-rousers. Mm-hmm. That's a very loaded term. I don't know if, if listeners can really appreciate what's being inferred there. I mean, it's, it's, it's not pleasant. No. Um, I, you remember, this was the Red Scare 1950s. This was the time of Senator Joe McCarthy and the Hollywood Ten. So being accused of communism was... Yeah, that's well, a... Well, Oh, well, socialism is still a four-letter <laughs> word to many Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, the owners dug in their heels behind Jimmy Norris, who was behind the empty suit of Clarence Campbell. Yeah. Meanwhile, as is shown, the players got 119 out of 120 to put up $100 each to move forward. The commie Jew lawyer, as Con Smythe did call him, Milton Mound, represented the players, who threatened the owners with an antitrust suit if their demands were not met. However, the moves and reprisals by the owners happened over the summer and fall of 1957, not immediately as we see in the movie. Marty Pavlich did retire rather than go to Edmonton, and the Leafs benched Captain Jimmy Thompson, then sent him to Siberia. I mean Chicago. <laughs> right. That's what they thought Edmonton was. <laughs> Nobody wanted to go there. No, that's exactly right. Now, uh, he was joined there in, uh, on July 24th by Ted Lindsay and Glenn Hall who Jack Adams also hated. And, and we have to say a word about this trade, Chris. Mm-hmm. Ted Lindsay was coming off the best season, uh, his best season ever, and Glenn Hall would become Glenn Hall. Yeah. A- A.K.A. Mr. Goalie. Everyone knew that on the team as well. Oh, without a doubt, yeah. yeah. Scotty Bowman said goaltenders are a breed apart. Glenn Hall was apart from that breed. Wow. He was the reigning Calder Trophy winner, and pioneered the butterfly style of play. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Now, and when you had Paul Paul McGoey on, yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul spoke about the continuing evolution of the goaltending mm-hmm. position, and uh, I had to smile when he brought up load management, mm-hmm. because Glenn Hall played a goalie record 
502 consecutive NHL games. It's insane. And he threw up before every one of them and wore a mask for none of them. Wow. And there's the second record we mentioned tonight. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's never. That's never. Untouchable. That's untouchable. Yeah. yeah without a doubt. Absolutely. And uh, Hall, uh, uh, he went on to play for the uh, expansion St. Louis Blues. Mm-hmm. In the 1968 finals, they were swept in four by the Habs. He still won the Conn Smythe. Uh, nominated to the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1975. Uh, also is part of maybe the NHL's most famous photo, the uh, Bobby Orr in the air goal, mm-hmm. the first Bruin Cup since 1941. Yeah. That's uh, Glenn Hall that he beat. That's right. In Nets. I think Paul McLean has that on his wall. Yeah. Or, or, you know, or in his wallet, you know, isn't that man- <laughs> mandatory for Bruin fans to have it on their He has pers- it on every wall of his house. Yeah, get yeah, around your person at all times, yeah, I think. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, it's etched on the inside of his eyelid. Yeah, well, yeah. certainly in the hearts of every Bruin fan. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and that's Glenn Hall yeah. that, that he get, that got beat for uh, for that cup. The uh, the Lindsay, uh, Lindsay and Hall, they were traded for Hank Basson. And a bag of pucks. Hank Basson, Johnny Wilson, Bill Preston, Forbes Kennedy. And, and I bring that up only because of that last name. Forby Kennedy was born in Dorchester, New Brunswick, okay. but raised and learned the game in Charlottetown, mm-hmm. returned to the island after his NHL career was over, went to work for the city of Charlottetown, recreation department, was my coach in, oh, wow. in minor baseball. Okay. Oh, yeah, for a couple of years, Forby. All right, oh, right, that's you, awesome. Yeah, and you could, you could see this. maritime connection. You know, yeah, and he was definitely, he was a local hero, and you could see this guy, you could see this man walking around you could tell he was he was tougher than a boiled owl. He he was you could tell he he bid to the wars, man. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and and I mean and and you know the fun thing about game, being able to do this, Chris. Yeah, is you know I you, you learn something every time I get to do a deep dive. Yeah, and uh, you know uh, knowing Mr. Kennedy, uh, although these many years I did not realize they once was traded. For uh, for Ted Lindsay and, wow. uh, and Glenn Hall. So, that that being said, it's yeah. uh, it remains maybe or in the conversation of the worst trades in NHL history. <laughs> and there's been some bad trades. And could you uh, could you maybe give yeah. me an example? Or I can or give you I can give you a few examples. Well, yeah. All right. Um, uh, I'm going to start with this one just for Paul. Uh, <laughs> in 2001, uh, the New York Islanders traded Zdeno Chara. This one's for you, too, oh, Yeah, hold on. I thought this was for Paul. <laughs> I wasn't even oh, thinking about no, you. No, Sorry. No, no, so the no, Islanders no. trade Big Z to Ooh. Ottawa um, alongside with Bill McCault and a first-round draft pick in exchange for Alexi Yashin. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was a mistake. Yeah. Um, the one that comes to mind for me right away is uh, when the Habs traded Patrick Waugh. So, I mean, the writing was on the wall there. He right. basically demanded a trade. Right. Yeah, but, yeah. but they had to trade him, along with their captain, Mike Keane, at the time. Yeah. Traded him for Jocelyn Tebow, who was nothing better than a backup goalie. Martin Ruzinski and Andre Kovalenko, yeah. maybe the best goalie of all time. Right. Traded yeah. for that. Yeah. Um, and here's another one for, uh, for the Bruins fans. Um, Cam Neely. Mm-hmm. The Vancouver Canucks yep. traded Cam Neely and a first-round draft choice to the Boston Bruins for defense or for uh, for centerman Barry Peterson. Wow, who's Barry Peterson? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember the name. Yeah, so there's been some doozies over the year, Terry. Yeah. Uh, over yeah. the years, sorry, but uh, obviously this uh, Ted Lindsay trade, how Jack Adams was able to uh, convince the the. The rest of the team and the public and the media, and and you see the way he does it, right? Exactly. You know, yeah, he's, 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 it was necessary. He was necessary, and he was able. You know, he had so much. You know, absolute power at that level, and yeah. he had the total backing of ownership. Totally. That you know they wanted to make an example of Lindsay, mm-hmm. and you know, and here's our chance to get rid of that. You know, that pain in the ass, uh, Glenn Hall as well. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Rookie of the year. Yeah, rookie of the year. <laughs> Right. Now, the movie shows a lot of moves being made. Uh, in September 1957, there was a 32% league turnover with trades and rookies. And this is at a time when two or three new faces a year per team was news. Mm-hmm. So the ownership, you know, they were, they were making their displeasure felt. The Habs held on to Doug Harvey, though, uh, pressing their advantage over the weakened Leafs and Red Wings. Uh, they would win the next three Stanley Cups, making it five in a row. Then they sent Harvey to the Rangers. Mm-hmm. 
Now, there was no one-on-one -on -one arbitration hearing showdown between Lindsay and uh, Smythe. You know, no when Con Smythe gets up and, and says, uh, oh, I, I can't afford it, boys. I, it should surely be the end of the game. Yeah. I can't, you know, I just can't. If I could, I would, right? Yeah. And, and, then, and then Ted Lindsay says, uh, we do love this game, and, and we play it for nothing but not while you're charging money to watch us, right? You know, that, none of that ever happened. But, but in November, the Leafs did vote to form an association, which was shocking. So the players were close. Right. So it all boiled down to Detroit at that point. It came down to Detroit. Yeah. And as the film shows quite accurately, Jack Adams forged a contract for $25,000 a year for Ted Lindsay, showed it to reporters, called in other favors from the press, wherein unnamed sources called Lindsay a cancer on the team. That locker room scene really happened. Jack Adams brayed about loyalty and small town values and a hungover Bruce Norris cried poor and showed them the books mm. as if, you know, that would make any sense to any of them. Yeah. Yeah. Shortly after, the Red Wings, led by Red Kelly and Gordie Howe, voted against forming an association. Now, other players around the league knew they would have done the same thing in their shoes. So it became a matter of easy to forgive. But as the years went on, hard to forget. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a testament to the basic goodness of Gordie Howe that, uh, yeah, he's not a, a more hated man in hockey circles. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, it's strange. It's yeah. a strange well, contrast. Again, yeah. It's he was, very he was, again, in a bad situation. He yeah. was in a no-win sort of place. Totally. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, and, uh, again, at, at the end of it, I think the thing was that he, he got taken advantage of more than anybody. More than anybody. And this is yeah. why, you know, I don't think there's really... Maybe he let everyone down in a sense, but at the same time, it cost him more than than any single person there. He also proved a lot about who he was as a human, so... And, and that was also and admirable. That's, and that's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly so in right. the end, Terry, the players, they got very little. Yeah, they did. And the, the owners were able, uh, to the ultimate detriment of the sport, to push the issues down the road. Uh, I love how Clarence Campbell puts it in the movie. The players brought many issues forward, and the NHL reform package answers them all <laughs> yeah. within the economic limitations of the sport. Yeah, fine for print. You, for you see, hockey is never a business. It's just a game. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, they got a $7,000 minimum salary and moving expenses for traded players. But here's the, here's the rub. The total cost of settlement to owners was less than they were paying lawyers to fight the players. So, yeah, uh, Doug Harvey, unfortunately, did die destitute, uh, but there was no curse of Ted Lindsay. You see the, uh, the graphic at the end that the Wings, you know, never won the Stanley Cup again, right? Yeah. They, uh, they, took they turned it, it around. They turned it around. They yeah. won it again in 95, 96. Yeah. Uh, still, that was 41 years after it took them, after Jack Adams broke up the band. Wow. Yeah, so that was a drought and, uh, and well-deserved. <laughs> it was, yeah. now that we know the story. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. So the aftermath... Right, the, uh, the owners had won, uh, but it was a Pyrrhic victory. And their failures to see the big picture led to the gradual marginalization of the sport. In the 1950s, hockey was more profitable than the other big sports. It was televised and popular on TV. But when the contract with CBS ran out in 1960, the NHL let it die and dissolved their broadcast committee. The Leafs and Habs continued to rake it in from Hockey Night in Canada, but wouldn't share the money with the other clubs. Clarence Campbell remained a pretentious figurehead, and as ownership began to change hands, the new man had no vision either. The owners wouldn't allow players to be like football's Broadway Joe Namath, who begat a star system that was the impetus to develop aggressive marketing and licensing plans that turned professional sports into a multi-billion dollar industry. And when Bobby Orr arrived, too big to ignore, he was in Allen Eagleson's hands. And the fact that the owners were happy to deal with Alan Eagleson <laughs> tells you all you need to know about the effectiveness of the nascent NHLPA, yeah. which was officially formed in 1967. So uh, Bobby Orr gets screwed by an agent, uh, not an owner. So progress, maybe I guess, yeah. you know, it's a step forward. <laughs> yeah. The, the owners' greed and short-sightedness and their inability to see hockey as entertainment and the players as the most valuable asset they had that's the moral of this story. Yeah. And, and Chris, you, you uh, and Paul McGoey mm -hmm. talked a little bit yeah. about the state of the game from the business side. And uh, cautiously optimistic? Maybe? I think so. I think, yeah. and, and I also think, you know, after, after reading this story, 
Um, certainly a lot of progress has been made. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's an understatement. Yeah. I mean, you know, progress has been made. Um, everything, I think, well, right now it's, it's really tough situation that they're in right now with, with the labor situation and they're, they're kind of having to throw caution to the wind and make changes as they go right of now course, yeah, to that's... just to kind of keep up with things. Yeah. But no, I like, I like where the league is right now. Um, I'm, I think there's still, there are still issues. I mean, you heard Barry Beck's conversation with me and, and things that are the lack of things and support that is being given to, to former players right. and, and people with um, with health problems, uh, yeah. whether physical or mental or whatever, yeah. um, there's still there's still some issues there that need to be resolved. Yep. Um, there needs there's a lot of um, reparations that need to be uh, made yeah. as yeah. well. And, and and again, you have to realize there's still a lot of guys, you know, around that that were there before the money exploded. Yeah. Right before exactly. television really took it to some of them are level. living on the streets right now. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the. Uh, uh, but but on the whole, uh, like every under other industry in the world mm-hmm. right now, you know, it's yeah. a, a bit of a wait and see attitude. Completely. Yeah, but uh, on the whole, and uh, again with the new Seattle franchise coming mm-hmm. in, oh, there'll be an infusion there. It's a sign and, of it's a, still a sign of progress yeah. and steady uh, growth of the NHL. Yeah, yeah, always a good sign. So a final word. Sure. Uh, every player I've heard you talk to on this show, male or female, they've all said the same thing. The key to being a good professional is to be consistent. It's the ability to show up every night ready to go, to get off the bus. And if you're not at your best, you block that out, you lace them up, you compete, then repeat. It's a grind. Those of us on the outside looking in, who prefer to stick to our illusions about the romance of the sport, we'd be well served to remember that while it's playing a game, it's also working for a living and working in what can be a very profitable industry. It's a job. A glamorous job? Not always. A lucrative job? Perhaps. A dangerous job? Inarguably. Compensation for those who play now, and perhaps more importantly, security for those who came before, are issues all three sides of the game, players, owners, and fans, will never fully agree on. The movie Networth shows all three sides the dangers of ignoring those issues, or pretending those issues don't even exist. Amazingly said, as always, Terry yeah, Whalen. I appreciate that. Lad. Thank you so much yeah. for uh, for coming in and yeah. enlightening us again. And uh, folks, if you haven't uh, watched the movie yet or read the book Net, Net Worth and you're interested in, in some history about uh, some hockey history, um, it's definitely worth a read. Yeah, without a doubt. And uh, again, the, the power of the YouTubes. That's right. Yeah. Make sure you put in net worth hockey movie. Yes. Because if you just put in net worth, you'll never you, find oh, you'll, it. You'll get down a rabbit hole that <laughs> you, might, you might take you years to get out of. Well, Terry, thanks again for coming in. And um, folks, we'll be back again with Terry probably within the next month or so with, with another fascinating story. Looking forward to it already. Awesome. Chris, thanks, thanks Terry. That All was right. Across the Pond, and that's a wrap. All right. Thank you to our amazing sponsors. As always, The Big Bite. Yardley Brothers Beer, Ben Marin's Photography, Sunset Studio, Print House Limited, and Asia Sports Tech. Finally, thank you to Lauren Orris and Fiona Chow, who have helped us as advisors and liaisons to Hong Kong's hockey world. To support the podcast, check out our amazing merchandise on our website at acrossthepondhk.com. Check us out on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Across the Pond HK.